Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Vancouver at Regent College. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown, Hughes, and Jules Martinez Olivieri. We hope that you're doing well. In this episode, we're going back to our roots because Matt Bates and I are co-hosting an episode. It's been a while since we've done that, so it was fun to get together to interview Mike Bird for this episode. Thanks so much to Taylor Terzek for producing this episode and to all of you who support the podcast so regularly. Thanks so much. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to OnScript. This is Matthew Bates. We are returning to our OnScript roots today, going all the way back to the point of origin. And that's because my fellow OnScript co-founder and my all-time favorite co-host and I are doing an episode together. That is Matt Lynch. Hey, Matt. Good to be back with you. Uh, I, You know, it's interesting. I was looking back through our archives and... I noticed that I think the first uh, episode that we hosted together, probably back in 2016, maybe early 2017, was Chris Tilling on Christology. Wow, that's a low point. Yeah, (laughs) it's very appropriate to do this episode with Mike Bird and his book on Christology. And, And I noted in Mike's book that he refers to Chris as uh, one among, quote, a new generation of scholars. And and let's just say that um, I think that will come as good news to Chris, that he's a new generation of scholars. Absolutely. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, a, a very young man, a very young man. Yeah, yeah. Well, as if we weren't already flooded by waves of nostalgia, we've got Mike Bird with us today, and Mike's a friend of the podcast, been with us several times uh, and so thanks for joining us today, Mike. Welcome back to OnScript. Yes, hello to Matt 1 and Matt 2. Great to be with you and all of your listeners. Well, thanks, Mike. Last time we had you on the show, um, I think we were talking about uh, the book that you co-authored with N.T. Wright, The New Testament in Its World. I think Aaron and I were uh, running you through the mill uh, with questions about that. And then before that, it was your Jesus, the Eternal Son, in which you give uh, a fairly robust beatdown uh, to the idea that earliest Christology was adoptionist. I appreciated the beatdown, uh, not that it was aimed at me, uh, but maybe some other folks. Uh, but I'm wondering, Mike, do you have anything at all, uh, anything at all still to say about Christology? Is there anything you could add? Well, I think there is, Matt. I think there is. And I found it in my latest book, Jesus Among the Gods, Early Christology in the Greco-Roman World, where I try to bust a whole lot more myths out there and try to make ontology, the study of being, great again and relevant for the study of early Christianity. Wow. Thanks, thanks, Mike, for trying to make Christology great again. Um, that's that's an ontology great again. Yeah, that's a, a noble um, that's a noble slogan. You might you might get somewhere with that slogan if you if you were to run with that slogan. Um, Mm. Yeah. Anyway, Mike, certainly you do have a lot to say uh, about Christology. You always have a lot to say uh, that's interesting about most everything, but especially Christology, I think, has been an ongoing passion of yours for for some time. And you you managed to churn out some 400 high-quality pages, I'll say, um, as uh, you mentioned, uh, this new book, uh, Jesus Among the Gods, 
early Christology in the Greco-Roman world, uh, fresh off the press uh, with Baylor, uh, Baylor University Press. Uh, so in your book, you're reacting to a popular scholarly narrative uh, that I think is fair to say has dominated theological discussion for some 200 plus years. Um, would you take us briefly through the popular narrative of Christology uh, as a way of kind of setting up the conversation, because certainly you're reacting against portions of that popular narrative. But what is the narrative? Okay, the basic narrative uh, is something like the early church regarded Jesus as divine, but it kind of evolved in the intensity of the divinity ascribed to Jesus. So he's, you know, in Paul's letters, he's kind of divine. Uh, he's maybe a little bit more divine in the Synoptic Gospels. And then when you get into the book of Hebrews and the Gospel of John, then he's super duper uber mega divine. Okay. And there's different ways we can talk about Christology. We could talk about a functional Christology. I mean, Jesus does some divine functions, you know, judging, saving people. Others want to talk about Jesus receiving divine worship. Other people want to talk about Jesus participating in a divine identity. And all the ontological discussions about the very nature of a God, what it means to be a, a deity, uh, yeah, that does happen, but that happens in the second century and then crystallizes in the Nicene Creed where Jesus is eternally begotten and that type of thing. I mean, that's, that's what I see as the standard narrative when it comes to the discussion of Christology in the New Testament. But what I want to say is uh, the nature of a deity, what we, what we call ontology, was part of the religious grammar in antiquity. And they had their own, uh, their own taxonomy, their own categories for thinking about divine beings. And they generally separated them into two types. There were unbegotten or uncreated deities, and then there were created deities. Okay, And if you compare someone like the Apostle Paul, with the philosopher and author Plutarch and with the Jewish author and philosopher Philo of Alexandria, you can see that Paul himself has a lot of parody with the philosophical language used to describe deities in the ancient world. And in, in other words, then, ontology is not something that happens in the second century when everyone gets drunk from reading Plato. People like Paul, the writer to the Hebrews, and, and the Johannine literature, it is, it is certainly immersed in the same language, in the same descriptions of divine beings you find in the ancient world. So we do need to think more about ontology, what is a divine being, when we come to Jesus as he's described in the New Testament. So, Mike, would it be fair to say with, with that sort of dominant scholarly narrative that you outlined that... Um, a modification in recent years has been to at least sort of push the functional side of things back earlier um, and or at least to introduce the category of functional identity with Yahweh or functional worship of Jesus as uh, it was given that worship was given to Yahweh. So that's kind of moved earlier, but now you're wanting to fill out that earlier picture to say the stuff that's associated with later developments like ontology, also comes earlier. Yeah, and and I, I think we can we can sort of not so much correct and replace, but kind of fill in some of the gaps. You know, Jesus does undertake certain divine functions. Okay, um, like you know, like saving people from their sins. Okay, uh, he's an agent of judgment. But you can also find other intermediary, intermediary figures who also have a salvific role, or who 
also receive certain types of veneration or who also have a role in the final judgment. And that's always been the issue with the functional Christology. Okay, Jesus is divine in some sense, but that's just, you know, the same thing that you might find from any other intermediary figure, whether that's the the son of man in one Enoch or Melchizedek in 11Q um, mm. milk. I mean, so in one sense, Jesus would just be divine on this somewhat lesser and lower level if you're simply operating in functional categories. I want to go beyond those functional categories and say, does Jesus share in the divine stuff or the sort of um, essence or being that separated the most high God from all the lesser mm-hmm. beings? So I think there is a functional Christology in there in the in the New Testament in early Christianity from the earliest days of the primitive church. But the real standout is how this language of absolute deity right. is being attributed to Jesus fairly early on. So we'll come back to the ontology stuff. Um, one thing I also wanted to ask about was the role that monotheism plays in your study. So you you have a, a section where you discuss monotheism. What's at stake? in discussions about early Jewish monotheism as it pertains to uh, Christology? Yeah, well, a, a, a number of people are arguing that um, ancient Jewish monotheism was not particularly strict, that, you know, um, being divine was kind of a spectrum. You know, angels are in a certain sense divine. When, you know, Enoch ascends to heaven, he becomes divine in a certain sense. And when we talk about Jesus as being divine, he's simply somewhere in the spectrum. And and we know there's references to Yahweh being, you know, God of gods. I mean, well, how do you have monotheism if Yahweh is God over a pantheon of many gods? That would suggest that the ancient Hebrews and even those in the Second Temple period were really uh, polytheists that just believed one most high God reigning over these other lesser gods. So some people have tried to uh, deconstruct or dismiss the entire concept of monotheism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now everything they're saying there is true. I mean, you know, you know, in the Psalms, you know, Yahweh is God of gods. There are these other divine beings. There is something of a spectrum. The problem is divinity in the ancient world was relative to the point where it became absolute. And there was one being who was so supreme, so unrivaled, who had no one in his own league to the point that people began to speak of this deity as if he was the only one in his own class. And that, I think, is the origins of where we get our own language of monotheism. It doesn't mean that Yahweh is the only divine being, but he is species unique. He is in his own league, as it were. But scholars... um, tend to exploit that kind of ambiguity of there being many gods and many lords, that kind of thing, to say, oh, well, monotheism, of course, we know that's a load of nonsense developed in the 17th century. Uh, I think, and I know you're sympathetic on this, man, I think mm-hmm. monotheism has a lot more utility and a lot more, a lot more value uh, as a term in describing ancient Hebrew religion. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, that's helpful. And I, I'm still, um, you know, kind of lagging behind is I'm still thinking about people in the second century being drunk on Plato. I mean, do you think that actually might explain what's going on in the Valentinian Gnostic, you know, uh, myths? Mm-hmm. Were they actually drunk, uh, just maybe on Plato? Um, <laughs> well, I have read a lot of Christian literature, orthodox and heterodox, and I do wonder if people were um, enjoying a few libations <laughs> as they composed the various treaties 
the end of the Gospel of Thomas has got to be up there for one, but that's a that's another story. That's another story for for another day. Yeah, look, everyone is interacting with the philosophical tradition around them, uh, but but that happens in different ways and different degrees. I mean, you know, the author of Hebrews is clearly operating in a Platonic framework, um, and he certainly knows, uh, or she, he or she knows, Greco-Roman rhetoric. But twenty five percent of the book is also drawn from the Septuagint, you know, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So that goes to show you what's really driving that. So, yeah, I mean, every, everyone's operating with a certain philosophical currency, uh, but it varies in, in in degree, not kind. So, I mean, Mike, you'd want to say they're they're tipsy on Plato, but drunk on the Old Testament, right? Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe for Hebrews that would be the case. That would be the case. I mean, and this is part of the big debate. Uh, are, the, are the main influences on early Christology, are they Jewish or are they Greco-Roman slash pagan? This has been one of the big debates we have. And um, in, in some ways, it's, it's a false dichotomy because, you know, the Jewish world itself was certainly situated within the wider Hellenistic uh, Mediterranean culture. You know, as, as we all know, Alexander the Great had and his army had come through in the fourth century and the whole Eastern Mediterranean in varying degrees was Hellenized. And then you've got the further overlay of um, Roman culture as well. And, and that had a big influence. And you can see that uh, influence being funneled into Jewish language, ideas, and religion in various ways. So you have something we call Hellenistic Judaism, which is Judaism, you know, based on the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish way of life, very Torah-centered, very, very pious in its own way, but it's not a, not immune from wider philosophical currents in antiquity. And yet, and yet people want us to choose, well, are the main sources Jewish or the main sources Greco-Roman? Uh, in my own mind, I think we have elements of both there. That said, I do think simply going on the number of citations and, and allusions and the the raw intertextuality of the New Testament that the Old Testament is is um, overwhelmingly the major influence on how people have thought about Jesus and verbalized their experience of Jesus. Well, I'm going to take us into the heart of the matter here with your book, which is ontology. So we might want to ask, um, as part of that, what you mean by ontology, just to clarify that maybe briefly for us. Uh, but beyond that, um, whenever someone claims something like the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God, you know, we have to be very careful thinking about what the word God means, right? And um, I wonder if you could um, maybe catalog some of the faulty assumptions you see um, brought to the table, especially from modern contemporary readers, as they retroject ideas back into the first century where do they make ontological mistakes in thinking about um, the category God? Um, and so maybe clarify ontology, what do you mean by that briefly? And then where are the common mistakes with regard to contemporary readers um, misapplying ideas about God? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when I talk about ontology, I mean the study of being and in, in, in looking at the question of what, you know, what is a God? What is it? that makes someone a god, you know, that, that kind of thing. That, that's what I'm looking at. That's so the, the, the study of ontology is the, the what is something. So what does it mean to be divine? Uh, when it comes to mistakes that are, that are made, um, people, scholars seem to be very, very um, urgent or worried that they're not 
reading the categories of the later church into the into the New Testament. Okay, so people are, are very allergic to anachronism, assuming that when the fourth century church fathers and, and church mothers, when they spoke about Jesus in their career in their creeds, in their exegesis and their theological treaties, scholars want to make sure that that kind of understanding is not being anachronistically read back into the New Testament, which is a legitimate concern. But to that end, I think they've gone too far and they've bought into the idea that the, the that there is no ontology in New Testament Christology because they're, they're, they're so anxious about avoiding anachronism. Uh, now, that becomes public because there was ontology discussed in, in, in ancient religion. And I remember reading through Philo when he's talking about Gaius, you know, I mean, Caligula. Caligula, um, Philo says, you know, claims he's got the, he, he has the form of divinity. And Philo says, no, he doesn't because he doesn't have the oozier of divinity. Now, Matt, you know some pretty good Greek. I'm talking about Matt mm. Bates here, not the Hebrew Matt. I know Matt Bates has <laughs> some pretty good Greek. What does ousia mean in Greek? It, it means being or essence, like, a, you know, connected to the word is, right? Yeah, so. I know. And so in terms of talking about why Caligula is not a, a deity, Philo jumps to ontological language. He might prance around dressing up as, as Mars or whoever he likes, but he doesn't have the stuff of divinity in him. Uh, and this is roughly contemporary. Uh, with with the, with the beginnings of early Christianity, that this literature is coming out, and yet no one seems to 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 notice this, or using the main taxonomy for talking about divinity in the ancient world, which is are you a unbegotten god or a begotten god? And all I'm trying to do, you know, as a good comparative historian, is put the New Testament, particularly like Paul and and the Gospel of John. Uh, in dialogue with people like Plutarch and Philo and others who are using this language. So that's that's why I think we need this correction and we need to come back to ontology. That doesn't mean we understand ontology in the same way they do in the fourth century, where I think it is a little bit more freighted, it is a little bit more developed, it's got its own technical nuances and connotations, but there is ontology there in the first century and I think definitely in the New Testament. Mike, I think we should we should highlight um, those two categories of God that you just mentioned, because I, I want to make sure people don't miss that. Could you just unpack those two categories of deity? Because that's important in your study. Yeah, well, let, let me come back and tell a story, okay? I was once in your wonderful land, the United States of America, in a, uh, in, up, up in, um, where was I, Washington State, in a charming little town called Bellingham. Really is a nice place. And I stumbled into a little bookshop, and I came across a copy of a, of a, a volume by Plutarch. I think it was his, his, his Moralia. And I'm reading through it. And he and he refers to two different types of worship of uh, of, of of Apollo, uh, one where he's an unbegotten deity, and another one where he's a begotten deity. And I, I looked at this and said, "Look, I'm familiar with this language, but I'd always assume this is something that belonged to the much later church. It was a somewhat Christianized way, a technical way of talking about Jesus as divine and in differentiation to the Father. And that was kind of the rabbit hole I fell through when I realized in the ancient world, these were among the main ways they talked about divine beings. So you have an unbegotten deity, which is, you might call an absolute eternal 
um, impassable divine being. And then you have people who you might say are promoted to divine honors, like someone, like an emperor who ascends to heaven and is deified, or many of the heroes of antiquity. I mean, in, in biblical um, usage, we could talk about Enoch and Elijah being assumed into heaven. That would be a type of being promoted in divinity. Uh, the best analogy I can think of uh, is there's like the two different ways of being divinity. You can be a member of the House of Lords. This is a, a British political metaphor where it's a kind of um, hereditary thing you have. You're a member of the House of Lords, or you can be voted into the House of Commons and elected into it. So these are the two categories of divinity. Is it something that's hereditary and you have by pure being and biological descent, or is it something that you get elected to on the basis of merit? That seems to be the two types of divinity in the ancient world, and I wanted to ask: Well, if that is if that is the sort of the uh, the taxonomy we're using, which one is Jesus according to the witness of the New Testament and early Christian literature? Did they think of him as a begotten d- divine being or as a unbegotten divine being? And which is he? Well, it depends which literature you read. Um, in some cases, I think it's a bit ambiguous. I'm I, I can't be a hundred percent certain about the Gospel of Mark, uh, Luke, and Matthew. I mean, there, there, there are some reasons you could go either way. But certainly when you read the Gospel of John, Hebrews, and I think certain parts of Paul's, Paul's letters, it's definitely the case that Jesus is an eternal, unbegotten deity. And I can say on that I'm not the only one pushing that view. Other scholars have said something similar, Jerome Nere, uh, Gabriella Boccaccini, and uh, Jürgen Frey have said similar things, that you can use those categories. So there are absolute ways of ascribing divinity to um, beings, and those categories are definitely applied to Jesus in the New Testament, though maybe not all the New Testament. Before I throw it back to to Matt Bates uh, for further interrogation, um, one thing, one uh, response that, that people might have when you talk to go back to the language of functional versus ontological. Uh, some people talk about a functional ontology. Um, do you find that language helpful or is that just obscure matters? Well, yeah. I mean, what I'm trying to get away from is the idea, well, Jesus is simply performing certain roles of a divine being, but that doesn't necessarily tell us anything about what kind of a being he sure. is. Okay. He's, he, it's just functional. There's no ontology there at all. I mean, that's the view I'm trying to get away from. Okay. Uh, in terms of there being in a functional ontology, well, the functions you do, do tell us something of what and who you are. Okay. So I, I do think functions speak to ontology, although ontology is not reducible to all these sorts of functions. I mean, I, I could guess that's what I'm saying. So sure. I, don't, I don't mind the idea of a functional ontology as inferences drawn from the functions, works, or deeds of a of a divine figure of some kind, whether we're talking about, you know, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark or we're talking about, um, you know, Melchizedek in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, I want to commend you, Mike. I do think that the data you churned up was certainly new to me on um, some of this ontology in the first century, the stuff from Philo and Plutarch, stuff I hadn't seen before. I mean, I haven't read infinitely around Christology, but I've read a bit. And so I think you're making new arguments that are compelling and interesting, and uh, we're going to have to see how uh, the rest of the scholarly community grapples with it. Let me um, just do a little bit more to introduce you to our audience. Dr. Michael Bird is academic dean, postgraduate coordinator and lecturer in theology at Ridley College, 
in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And Mike has also lived a diverse and diverting non-academic life. He grew up in Brisbane before joining the Army and serving as a paratrooper, intelligence operator, and then chaplain's assistant. During the time in the military, uh, he became a Christian and eventually completed a PhD uh, at University of Queensland. Michael taught New Testament at the Highland Theological College in Scotland and then the Brisbane School of Theology in Australia before joining the faculty at Ridley in 2013. He runs a very popular blog, Evangelion, has penned countless articles and books. He has even dared to write a novel, and perhaps even more shockingly, since he's a biblical scholar, he's written a systematic theology of sorts uh, under the title Evangelical Theology. Apparently, maybe even it's the case that some people like it as it's now moved into a second edition. Uh, so here to be congratulated there, Mike, on uh, crossing over and making that difficult leap into systematics. Yeah. All right, Mike. Well, uh, your second chapter then, um, I think we've already discussed a bit, uh, which was uh, the search for divine ontology. That was um, uh, the, the the bit on um, the different classes of divinity, uh, the ones that are divine by nature and those that are divine by merit. I was wondering if you had any um, just favorite examples you wanted to mention um, that would illustrate that even further, especially what it means to like earn divine honors. Um, or, um, maybe it's easier to understand the idea of being like by nature a god because you're an uncreated being. Mm. But what about earning divinity? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean that normally happens when a a person, a, a god, it can be a, just an ordinary person, uh, or even a a demigod like you know Hercules slash Heracles, uh, has lived such a life that then they then kind of get upgraded in their divinity. So someone like Heracles, um, he's a sort of semi divine figure. You know, Zeus is his dad. He does his various labors, and then at the end of his life, I think it's Livy who says this. Um, uh, he he then kind of, you know, goes on a pyre and, and then as the fire, it's that he gets kind of wafted up into heaven and he gets promoted within his divinity. Uh, but then you've got something like the Roman emperors and if the uh, various emperors, I mean, certainly going back to Julius Caesar, if they had done well and, and been good rulers, then their, their uh, successor would then have them uh, deified. I mean, in, in the in the Roman world, this was called consecratio, where you would be consecrated as a divine being, and you and you would become uh, a, a divine entity. You know, and it would normally be associated with some sort of you know sign, like a comet in the sky, or you know someone would notice a new constellation uh, in the stars, and and that's where you would become, in a sense, uh, a god. And you could even have your own temples, your own priesthoods, and annual sacrifices of the like. And that, so that's the example of someone being promoted into uh, divine, divine nature or entering the divine pantheon at some level. And, and Mike, um, I think in one of your chapters, you outlined the Christological approaches of different scholars. I think our listeners will be familiar with people like James Dunn and Larry Hurtado and N.T. Wright and even uh, lesser lights like like Matt Bates. Um, and uh, I, I was just wondering if you could outline the ways that your work has benefited from what they've done, but also like what's your kind of main pushback against these different approaches that that you outline in that chapter? And Chris Tilling's in there too 
Onscript co-hosts. Yeah, I mean, th- these are all great scholars. You know, Matt Bates included. They're, they're, they're cited frequently uh, in this volume and for good reason. You know, you can only do scholarship in, in interaction with others and building on the work of others. Uh, I, th- I think another of, a number of scholars have done a good job in pointing out things like the way the Yahweh passages in the Old Testament are applied to Jesus. I mean, classically, you've got mm-hmm. you know Philippians to the uh, the Christ hymn, where the, the the same language of Isaiah, you know, that the same monotheistic rhetoric is being you know being applied to Jesus. So you go from Isaiah forty five to being applied to Jesus as the one to whom every knee shall bow on earth, in heaven and and, and under the earth. So I mean, that's true, but you can find a little of the same thing being applied to other intermediary figures, maybe not always with the same intensity or with the same, um, you know, uh, resolute focus, but, but you can find that in other places too. Um, someone like uh, Larry Hurtado likes to say that Jesus is worshipped in a cultic way that is generally applied to Jesus. And, and I think that's true, particularly when you get somewhere like uh, the book of Revelation, you, you get angels who, who refuse to receive worship, and yet all of creation is worshiping, you know, uh, the, the Lamb on the throne. So Jesus in the Book of Revelation is clearly receiving divine worship. Uh, the, the problem is, though, is as many of us know, that worship itself can be a kind of ambivalent category. Okay, that there, 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 there are there are different definitions, and so whether using worship as your main index of divinity, uh, I think it's useful to a degree. But at the same time, it, it, it can still be problematic or, or it can't necessarily indicate absolute divinity. Similarly, other people like to talk about divine identity. This is Richard Borkham. I, now, I find this uh, immensely helpful. I, I do know Matt does have a, a few uh, reservations. He prefers the, 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 the category of personhood. I think that's true. My problem with with, with Borkham, though, is he's using divine identity, the who a deity is, explicitly because he wants an alternative to ontology. So rather than talk on what a deity is, he wants to focus exclusively on the whole concept of identity. Now, I, I do think that is useful in some in some ways because, you know, particularly through the divine functions Jesus performs, he's got the divine name, he's on the, uh, the, the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. So I think it is... It is useful, but when you set it over and against ontology, I, I just find that that needless and, and problematic. I, I, again, I just don't share this allergy to divine ontology because people are worried that we're going to be reading four century categories into the New Testament, and and that's what I find interesting. Both both uh, uh, Richard Balcom and Larry Hurtado both set their own projects over and against those. Um, who, who want to find ontology there. They want to say, we're, we're not looking for the ontology of fourth century creeds and dogmas. We're finding another way of thinking as Jesus is divine. And I'm like, well, maybe ontology actually is a good place to start. Yeah. That, I think that's a really helpful contribution in your book. I think, you know, because one of the dynamics that you're wrestling with throughout your book is the phenomenon of comparison. I mean, because that that plays a huge role in any of these Christologies that we've mentioned, uh, because you know if if you find a few intermediary figures that people are bowing down to or even giving kind of cultic reverence to, then it can pull the carpet out from under your claim that that's a unique feature of Jesus 
uh, you know, that points to Jesus' divinity or someone else performing Yahweh-like functions. Um, so I think that that parallel dynamic is something you're you're wrestling with and then saying, yes, that's going on, but also this more fundamental uh, absolute uh, divinity claim about Jesus, which is uh, another one of your main contributions. Yeah, and that's and that's exactly right, and that's exactly what I think is going on. I mean, you can talk about a divine identity. The, the things that are unique of God are being attributed to Jesus. Jesus is receiving, I think, a very high, very venerated cultic worship. But again, you can find other intimary figures who will do divine functions. You can find other beings receiving types of worship. So I think we need to step yeah. back and find a, 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 a better, shall we say, a meta category for thinking about divinity in the ancient world. And, and as it goes, they actually did have their own categories. Yeah. I, one of the books that I thought you would engage more uh, was Daniel Kirk's book, A Man Attested by God. Um, I think you do mention it in there. Um, but it's interesting because what one of the things he does is say, all these things that people point to as unique uh, okay, extraordinary events in the life of Jesus or descriptions of Jesus that highlight his Yahwehness are really highlighting his um, ideal humanness. And so he then draws on all the humans who do Yahweh things or receive veneration or whatever it is. And, and it, it can like undermine those approaches. So I think, I think yours is a really good kind of pushback against um, that uh, potential conclusion from those studies. Yeah, I mean, Daniel Kirk's doing some interesting work. Uh, I'm not overall um, convinced by his thesis, but that's not to say there's not that there's not anything there that has value. It, it all comes down to well, what is the main analog for um, Jesus? And let, let, let me give you an example. This is where I think Chris Tilling is actually remarkable, helpful. Your good colleague. People look at Jesus, say in the in the Book of Revelation. You know, he's often described with angelic qualities or angel-like characteristics, but he can also be described as this sort of, you know, this yeah, eternal God who receives the same worship as Yahweh. And people will uh, compare him quite rightly with the the uh, the son of man from one Enoch. And this is another figure who has, you know, he's a Messiah who has angel-like qualities. Um but also seems to sit on a, a you know a big throne and is judging the various kings of the earth. And you can naturally um, compare Jesus with the with the Son of Man from one Enoch. Where Chris Tilling, I think, is right, saying, well, it's not just with one Enoch because in the Book of One Enoch, particularly the similitudes of One Enoch, there's also a character called the Lord of Spirits. And as it turns out, Jesus has a lot in common with him as well. Hmm. So it comes down to a question, what are the closest analogs for Jesus when you're looking at, because you know, you can, you can pair any two things. I mean, you can compare Vegemite and Nutella if you like, and there you will discover <laughs> a very sharp juxtaposition because although, although they both have a very dark color, mm -hmm. they both go on toast. They taste nothing alike. And have cult following, cultic devotion, I would say. Yeah, cultic. Well, in Australia, Vegemite um, does have cultic devotion. It's good for you, full of vitamin B, nice and salty, good with avocado. Um, but, I mean, you can compare Jesus with, like, the Son of Man in one Enoch, but you can also compare him with the Lord of Spirits um, in one Enoch. So why do we choose one analog over another? And that's what we've got to remember. Anything can be compared together. The question is, out of all the comparisons we make, 
what are the similarities? What are the differences? And what is the what is the figure that Jesus is most like? I've tended to argue that Jesus is in many respects like an intermediary figure, whether that's a Michael, angel Michael in the Qumran scrolls or some of the divine beings that Philo might talk about, like the Logos. But I think he has more similarities with, with, with Yahweh from the Old Testament or the different ways of thinking about an absolute deity in the context of antiquity. Well, thanks, Mike, for that um, brief recounting of some of the history of scholarship there. And I have to say, though, um, some of what you added was really not very useful. We didn't really want to know what Chris Tilling did well. What we really wanted to know is what Chris has screwed up. Oh, yeah. Um, he's one of the co-hosts here, and that would just be far, far more useful information for Matt and I to know where where is Chris Tilling wrong? That's what we need to know, Mike. Um, uh, should we put him on probation? I don't, well, I mean, I would rather die than speak ill of Christopher Tilling. <laughs> I would rather die. But nonetheless, I will proceed. I mean, uh, Chris, Chris Tilling is a great Paul scholar, uh, very good on Christology, very good on exegesis. Um, yeah, where, where does Chris go? Where does Chris go wrong? Uh, He's a little weak on Bart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. He does have a bit of a weird. Carl Bart thing, and he just drones uh, on and on and on about Bart, on and, and on and, and on. He does, he does have, he has have, a, does have a little bit of a Carl Bart thing going on, on that. Well, I mean, one thing about, I mean, Chris, uh, Chris is good at two things. I think one, he's good at the exegesis of um, Christological texts in Paul's letters, and I've always thought he would make a great mince pie salesman for Tesco's. <laughs> I could really see a brand of mince pies endorsed by Chris Tilling. And I mean, I know I for one would buy them. I don't mind a nice little mince pie. Mm -hmm. I would definitely buy a, 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 um, a packet of mince pies endorsed by Chris Tilling. Well, that's beautiful. Well, it's time for a speed round, Mike. Are you ready for um, uh, some quick questions? You just have a short answer or replies to these. You don't really get to defend yourself. You just reply. So you're ready for your first one. I'm, I'm ready. All right. Uh, so first one, um, do you, Mike, have any pet peeves? Uh, yes, I do. Um, people who drink coffee. What's the most significant book in biblical studies prior to the last 50 years, but, you know, a modernish book? A modernish book? Um, so we're talking pre-1970s-ish. Pre-1970s. Pre you got to go way back. Um, oh, boy, that's a hard one. I think any of J.B. Lightfoot's old commentaries – uh, I think they're all still pretty good. You can still read them today, and they're still full of great um, insights. I mean, this is a guy who knew the Greek language inside out, and he knew his classic sources. So anything by J.B. Lightfoot I think is still worth reading today. Yeah, Lightfoot was a genius. All right, you got to give us a book or author that's outside of Bible or theology that you think's reading could be fiction, could be historical, um, something outside our area that you think is worthwhile. Uh, William Dalrymple's The Return of a King about the British invasion of Afghanistan in the 19th century. Uh, amazing book because you can see all the mistakes that the British made and then how the Americans made the same mistakes in the more recent um, um, entree into Afghanistan. Knock, knock. Who's there? Amos. Amos who? Uh, a mosquito bit me. Knock, knock. Who's there? Andy. Andy who? Andy bit me again. Okay, one more. Um, knock, knock. Who's there? Yetta. Yetta who? Yet another mosquito. You need to get some mosquito repellent. All right, all right, Mike. What's a trend in society that scares you? Um, 
neck tattoos and face piercings. All right. To, to take things a different different direction. Uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Control freak. Okay, now you, you say control freak who? Control freak who? All right, all right, Mike. I know you love musicals. Have you seen Oklahoma before? Uh, I've heard, I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. Oh no! It. Well, my my question's ruined. I was going to ask whether you would rather be Curly or Judd if you got to star in it. Um, Definitely Curly. Oh, Curly. Uh, Judd gets to sing that wonderful song about his own death. Um, but and anyway. he also gets to all right and to sing. Uh, well, Curly gets to sing the great song about having a um, son and a daughter. Yeah, and he he sings the one about the corn being as high as the elephant eye too, and all that. So it's it's good. Oklahoma's a classic. Yeah, you, you gotta you gotta watch it again. Yep. Um. Okay, Mike. What's love got to do with it? What has love got to do? Um, love is everything you need to get through in life. Because I have all this life to live and I have all this love to give, I will survive. <laughs> Excellent. If you're hanging out, Mike, in the Australian outback, you're just you're just spending some time there. Uh, what bizarre Australian creatures are most on your mind as a concern? Uh, taipan snake, particularly if you're in North Queensland. Uh, you get bitten by one of those, your um, prospect for life expectancy drops um incredibly very very nasty very venomous venom, very venomous doesn't snake. australia have like the the 10 most deadly vipers or something it seems like some some sort of like at least ad i've seen on the internet trying to convince me that they do uh they do they do well i mean one thing about uh, this is one thing i always think of, i have with Amer americans always say oh i'd never come to australia all those deadly snakes look i have walked i've i've walked around parts of the united states there are there are cities that I swear are about two weeks away from the Hunger Games. You know, um, I'll I'll take I'll take my chances with the snakes and crocodile rather than being you know, shot to death in a in a school or a shopping district. That reminds me when my uh, my wife and I studied, we met in Israel, and when she was there studying, her friends back in Chicago were like, "Oh my goodness, you're going to Israel? It's so." dangerous there there might be a, a a car bomb or something and then people in israel were like oh you're from chicago oh my word bang bang you know like yeah it's uh it's so yeah. violent back there so it depends on your perspective exactly let's let's jump past my question uh matt lynch and jump to your question then uh to start things back off again okay um w were there any intermediary figures because you have a big chunky chapter on those figures um you go into real detail on that which is great um that gave you pause where you thought hmm that's pretty darn close to the constellation of claims made about jesus so not just like yeah one point of contact but the whole package deal like does this undermine my thesis what, what kind of brought you closest to that concern yeah, I mean, I've I've never argued that Jesus is one hundred percent unique. Yeah. from all these intermediary figures, what I've tried to say, in some respects, he is similar, but there's also some respects in in what in in the sense that he's different. And I I like something that David Litwa says. He says if you focus just on similarities, it's parallelomania, just saying mm -hmm. this is that, this is that, over and over. But if you focus just on differences, then you're really just doing apologetics and maybe a, a tad naively. Okay, so I've I've tried to be very honest and say there are similarities and differences 
between Jesus and various intermediary figures. But there are some intermediary figures who are a lot closer to the portrayal of Jesus in the New Testament than uh, than others. I think the Son of Man and the similitudes of Enoch, I mean, there's a lot of similarities going on there. Or the way um, Michael is described as being exalted above all other angels. You find that in, in, in the Qumran scrolls or when you read something like the, the self-exaltation hymn uh, in Quran, the, the way that there's a, a figure um, and who's described with certain, you know, uh, with certain texts like, you know, Psalm 82, you know, that kind of language isn't being applied to Jesus. Not all too different from what you might find in somewhere like the book of Hebrews. So, you know, I, I did become, you know, very convinced that now there are some real similarities here. I mean, we, we can't explain them away or, you know, we, we've got we've got to wrestle with them. Certain um, angelic figures or human figures or divine beings are being described in ways uh, that do resonate with a little bit uh, of what you would find in early Christology. But, I mean, but here's the thing. Everywhere where I found big similarities, I also found big differences, and there was there was no um, th- th- there was there was no figure I found where you could say, "Aha, Jesus's divinity has obviously been modelled on you know Heracles or the deification of an emperor." Or Michael at Qumran, or the Son of Man in one. You know, there, there's no there's no smoking gun that explains this is where they got the idea for Jesus's divinity from. And while there are some uh, more conspiratorial accounts of Christological or- origins that that do want to find this smoking gun that explains how uh, J- Jesus is divine because someone was reading some peculiar text and married that to their devotion of Jesus. I don't think there is any decisive figure that the Christians have just plagiarized and made Jesus divine in the same way. Hmm. You know, it's not a precise parallel, but it you, reading your book made me think as an Old Testament scholar about some of the discussions about Yahweh's uniqueness in the ancient Near East. Um, like, like, for instance, or even within the Bible itself. So you have Elohim, the term for God, mm-hmm. applied to quite a range of figures. And, and that is grounds for confusion sometimes because deceased Samuel can be called an Elohim and an angelic figure type figure can be called an Elohim and Yahweh can be called an Elohim and the so-called deities of the nations can be called Elohim. So you get that spectrum, but you also get the same concern to promote or anxiety about parallels with Yahweh in the ancient world. So is uh, Yahweh similar to Marduk and Baal and all these different figures. And and so, and I think depending on where people have come to that question, a lot of people come with a real react, allergic reaction to any idea that Yahweh is unique or just a, a super defensiveness about protecting that at all costs. Yeah, exactly. You get some scholars who want to say that Yahweh is just Baal in a in a different costume, and then other people who um, quite defensively uh, want to say that they're you know they're so completely distinct and they're they're completely different sort of you know theistic cultures. Um, but the reality is, people are drawing from the same uh, religious realities of the you know the ancient Near East or the Second Temple period, and and there are some similarities. 
as far as we go. Um, and 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 because the Christ, the, the first Christians were thinking, wow, something remarkable has happened. Jesus has has died. He's been raised from the dead. He's exalted. What is the language we use to describe what we've seen, heard, and 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 and, and experienced? I mean, and, and they just had drew on their, their common repertoire of ideas that was around them. The words, the languages, the images, the stories about them. Now, frequently, I think they're, they're, they're main, they're, they're their main default setting for explaining how Jesus is divine is to go to the Old Testament, you know, particularly somewhere like Psalm 110 or Psalm 2, or looking at somewhere like Daniel 7. They're just drawing on the language they know for a way of describing how Jesus is divine and how his divinity and his functions, being, and purposes relate to the same thing of the God they also called Father. I think it's fair to say, as we kind of look at the landscape of comparative work, that one intermediary figure or set of figures above all else have been fronted by recent scholarship, and uh, that would be the imperial cult and, you know, the idea of the deified emperor. Uh, You have uh, quite a bit of material on this in the book. I'd like you to maybe walk through what are some of the most important points of continuity there where we say, like, yeah, Jesus is quite a bit like a deified emperor, and other places where you would say not so much, um, just partly because that has been such an important category in recent conversation. Yeah, I mean, the, the imperial cults were diverse ways that divinity was attributed to Roman emperors, and they were then um, venerated, honored, worshipped in ways congruent with a god. So one of the greatest honors a king uh, or sorry, an emperor, living or deceased, could receive would be to receive um, worship equal to the gods. I mean, and, and that's a phrase that you find equal to the gods. Um, so Augustus, that the Roman emperor, did great things for the people of the Eastern uh, Mediterranean. He saved them from civil wars, saved them from famine, protected them from the dreaded Parthians in the east. And uh, for his great benefactions and mercy, he was awarded honors equal to the Olympian gods. Now, here's the question. When Paul says Jesus uh, is equal to God, is he thinking in those same terms? Is he thinking equal to the God in the same way that Augustus was heralded as equal to the gods? Now, you can see how someone hearing that may well have that idea coming to their minds. You know, equal with God might mean something along the lines of the, of the imperial cults. Uh, But at the same time, I think there is also a big difference because if Jesus was going to be venerated in that same way that Augustus was as being declared equal to the God, then you would expect that at the end of the Christ hymn, not at the very beginning. So, So here's a good example of a phrase that I think does resonate with the the Greco-Roman imperial cults. but if you look at it a bit closer, there's also a, 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 a very big distinction because if Jesus was, was you know, um, heralded as, and at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and confess him as equal to the gods, that would be a closer analog with the imperial cult. As it goes, I still think there's a little bit of a distinction. So that's a good example of how a little bit similar, but a lot different. Probably the biggest similarity between Jesus and ruler cults in general, not just in the Roman imperial cult, but ruler cults in the ancient Near East, 
is the main text used for describing Jesus as divine is Psalm 110, verse 1. You know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, this was um, the John 3.16 of early Christology. This was the main way of talking about Jesus as a divine being. And that language, though, of being co-enthroned with a deity was very common in, a, in, in, a, in Egyptian imagery. It's in Hellenistic literature. You can find it in the Roman world. You can find coins of a, of a Roman emperor. I think like maybe a Claudius being co-enthroned uh, with someone like uh, Jupiter, you know, that, that deity. So the fact that Christians were using Psalm 110 goes to show that they were using um, effectively ruler cult imagery for their main way of talking about Jesus as divine. So uh, whereas some scholars like Larry Hurtado want to say, look, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, yeah, maybe sure there's a little bit of influence from, you know, the imperial cult and the way they describe Jesus. But I would say, no, wherever you get Jesus described in terms of Psalm 110, you've got ruler cult language being used because Jesus is being described as a synthronos, a throne sharer. And uh, I don't know if you know him, but Clint Burnett, wonderful guy, um, he's done a great, a great book on the, of being a throne sharer and a temple sharer in antiquity and the relevance that has for the study of Jesus in the New Testament. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, and thanks, Mike. I think that's that's really helpful. I, I, it makes me think of the Morphe Theu language too, yeah. um, you know, in the Philippians hymn, and then um, the form of God language, you know, that does suggest an ontology. And then at the end of the hymn, of course, the citation from Isaiah is at 45, you know, which is clearly a Yahweh citation in the Old Testament. Yeah, but, uh, yeah and, and it literally uses an ontological word like, you know, the being, hupako. Hupakon, mm. literally being um, in the form of God. Yeah. I mean, that's it's pretty strong ontological language. I mean, and this was in big flashing lights saying, get your ontology here. I don't know a clearer way uh, to put it. Or, you know, in, in the opening of Hebrews, you know, uh, though he was, you know, being the very radiance of God. So, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. It's literally there in the text. In your final chapter, Mike, you seek to describe what actually does set Jesus apart from the various Greco-Roman and Jewish gods. You offer six features that set him apart, and those six features include Jesus being crucified, being the creator and eternal, resembling Yahweh, being the giver of the Spirit, uh, the intensity of affection for Christ, and the early Trinitarian dimensions. Um, and so my question for you then is, why is it especially important, as it seems important to you, that Jesus is both creator and eternal, beginning in our earliest Christian sources? Yeah, I think in some of our earliest sources, we do find Jesus being described as belonging to the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. And, I mean, look, there are various demiurges in antiquity, figures uh, through whom a, a most high God would create through. I mean, you find that in, in Platonic literature as well. Uh, but the New Testament definitely emphasizes that Jesus is a pre-existing figure and God creates through him. And Jesus is that, that figure of both creation and redemption on behalf of the Most High God. Now, you can go a few different ways with this. Um, Gnostic literature goes in its own way. Jesus, at most, is the curator of the Pleroma, the sort of, you know, um, 
this home base or this gigantic cosmic bubble through whom all these various emanations come. So there's different ways of talking about demiurgism uh, in, in the ancient world. But uh, the apostolic generation and, and the writings that become the New Testament and proto-Orthodox literature are very big on Jesus being the supreme agent of creation. And the other thing that I find very interesting is that, yeah, I think there is an um, incipient Trinitarianism there. And, I mean, this has already been done in, in a couple of different ways by different people. Uh, Wes Hills think done a, a brilliant um, reading of the Apostle Paul, showing how the Apostle Paul really did contribute to the development of Trinitarian thought. One of my own uh, former students, Brandon Smith, he's got a great book on the Trinity and the book of Revelation, looking at, you know, the path from Nazareth to Nicaea really has to go through Patmos. We could also talk about, I believe, Thomas uh, Wynandy's uh, recent volumes uh, on the Gospels, looking at how you have a very um, uh, somewhat elaborate doctrine of God. I mean, ironically, people think of the synoptics as being low Christology. I mean, low Christology means it's not exactly the same as John, therefore it must be low Christology, which is a pretty weird way to divine low Christology from my mind. But the way Jesus is described as divine, he's, he's not an independent being. He's not merely a personification of God. He is a, an independent person, but his divinity is not independent of God the Father and the actions of the Holy Spirit. And I do think that is interesting because the divinity of uh, that is ascribed to Jesus in, in various types of Christian literature is never removed from what, what we might call this um, incipient economic Trinitarianism. Jesus saves as he's been sent by the Father and empowered by the Spirit. And I think that is one of the more um, that the more interesting, and if we want to say so, you know, unique facets of the development of early Christology. Well, Mike, I don't know if that's a signal pointing toward your next project or not. Oh, yeah. The, the development of the Trinity is the next oh, book. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Um, that's good to hear. Well, uh, Mike, all good things must come to an end, including even this interview. And we want to thank you so much for uh, the fantastic work that you've done uh, in this book and in your scholarship. And uh, thanks so much for joining us on OnScript. Well, thank you to the two Matts for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. And, uh, you know, and part of me really did miss have Chris Tilling here. I think he would have added a lot to the conversation, uh, particularly if he could have furnished us all with some <laughs> mint pies. Yeah, well, maybe next time. That sounds great. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.